0: Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that retinol becomes retin-A or tretinoin on your skin. You know, So retinol is over-the-counter strength, and you can buy it over-the-counter, because when it's when you actually purchase it and you put it on your skin, it's inactive. But it goes through two phases and eventually becomes the exact same thing that's put in prescription strength tretinoin. It's just usually at a, at a lower dose. And so to use a retinol, you know, once again, it's great for anti-aging. It's something that you have talked about on your podcast before um, but at the same time, it can potentially do even more than that. And so if I had to pick one, that's the one I would probably pick.
1: Welcome to Hashtag the podcast, a place for listeners to hear from the experts and soak in tangible tips to get that glow from the inside out. I'm Amy, a skincare educator, practicing dermatology PA and beauty creator who bridges the gap between you and the industry. Listen in to the industry's top experts on everything from the best way to spot treat a pimple, which skincare ingredients we shouldn't be mixing, to the drugstore finds that are better than luxury price tags. We cover it all. Here, dermatologists, skincare experts, brand founders, and thought leaders will share their tips and tricks for all things beauty, skincare, and wellness. Think of hashtag skinthusiasts like a coffee chat with the beauty gurus whose brands you've always wanted to pick. You won't get this kind of insight anywhere else. Your best skin is coming soon america's holistic plastic surgeon dr anthony yoon is on the show today and this episode is so full of information for anybody who wants to help support their skin health from the inside out we talk about eating for younger looking skin the data on skin supplements collagen powders at-home devices and even how intermittent fasting can help your wrinkles Plus, we touch on things like sculpture, threads, and breast implant illness. If you have been looking in the mirror wondering what non-invasive changes you can make at home to your skin, this episode is for you. I would love to start with what is your earliest memory of when you kind of became aware of skin aging and skin health?
0: So, yeah, probably my earliest memory um, when I was younger, I did have some issues with kind of pigmentation of my skin and it was odd. My skin was very patchy growing up. Uh, now I grew up back in the '80s, where we didn't really wear a lot of sunblock. Uh, we had a pool at my house, so I would be out in the pool in the s- summer all the time. And by the end of the summer, I'd be really, really dark. And I never, honestly, growing up, really thought much about wearing sunblock at all. And then when I was in college, I actually went skiing uh, up in the Alps, uh, and uh, I was I did a foreign study experience with a couple of my friends and. And at the time, uh, my, my friend who I was skiing with was really light, light complexed. So he's like, he had some sunblock with him. We were way up in the mountains. It was in the spring, but there was snow and it was sunny. And he's like, well, just put a little bit of sunblock on. I go, oh, that's fine. So I take it and I went like this and I slapped my face once and like, I'm fine, fine. You know, we went skiing for the day. Well, I had the worst sunburn. Like I actually don't ever remember getting sunburned growing up at all because of the melanin in my skin, but I got this horrible sunburn out really in the, what I thought was like, you know, in a cold climate that I, you know, if I'm not going to get sunburned in the sun like in the summer, why would I get sunburned there? So I had this horrible sunburn everywhere except these two hand marks on my cheeks. And yeah, that definitely taught me that I need to protect my skin. And I do find it interesting because growing up, I never got burned. But as I've gotten older, my skin has gotten, I think, more sensitive to it.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I've actually experienced the same thing. And I think also just protecting myself more from it because I, I, my dad is Greek. So growing up, I would get really, really dark. We'd be out in the sun all the time. And then so my skin would be super tan. And we know that that does give us a little bit of protection, although that's not ideal, right? Because we're still getting all those aging benefits of the sun— Or not benefits, but consequences of the sun. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) um, I've noticed that too, as I've gotten older and as I've been more um, diligent about not getting sun exposure, I do burn a lot easier than I used to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's something, you know, I'm not sure how much of it has to do with aging, uh, how much of it has to do with hormone changes or just the fact that, yeah, I mean, maybe it's also that I got so much more sun back growing up than I do now since I'm indoors much more. Uh, And it's probably a combination of all things, I bet.
1: Yeah, I think about that often, actually. It's a very interesting topic. So can you tell us a little bit, for the followers who may not know, a little bit about your career journey, because obviously, as a, a highly specialized plastic surgeon, there is decades of training and education that goes into something like that. And I'd love to kind of get, you know, a Cliff Notes version of, of what you've gone through in the past few decades.
0: Thank you. So, yeah, I um, I went through four years of undergrad. Um, I did four years of medical school at Michigan State University, uh, and then I went to a combined plastic surgery residency where I did three years of general surgery. So, I did trauma surgery, ICU, um, all different types of general surgical type of, of, of stuff. And then I spent two years in plastic surgery. Uh, my residencies I did at Michigan State University as well. Uh, and then I spent a year out in Beverly Hills with the top name Beverly Hills Plastic Surgeon out there um, for a year where essentially we called a fellowship, but it's essentially like an apprenticeship where you work underneath a big name doctor, learn kind of all their secrets. Um, And then I ended up uh, starting my practice in uh, the outskirts of Detroit, Michigan. Um, My wife grew up around here. I grew up near Grand Rapids. And, you know, I had an offer to actually stay at the practice in Beverly Hills. um, But I just found it really wasn't my thing. Um, It's a whole other world in Beverly Hills plastic surgery. And I thought, you know, I may want to do a little bit of reconstruction. I felt like um, I felt that Draw that I should do some type of giving back, like giving. Uh, I take. I've actually taken an emergency room call for the last twenty years. I just finally stopped just a few months ago, um, and I thought, you know, here in Beverly Hills, it was all about the money. Um, that's all really plastic surgery was, and there are parts of it that were exciting and fun with the celebrities and stuff like that. But then there are also parts of it that I just felt this just wasn't me, and I wasn't going to uh, start up my own practice in Beverly Hills. I didn't want to go into competition with the person who trained me. So I thought, let me go back. michigan and start a practice so i started practice out in michigan and literally within about six months of starting my practice probably less than that while while i was in la we filmed an episode of the show called dr 90210 uh, which was one of the first plastic surgery reality shows and uh, and i didn't think too much of it i go back to michigan and after i'm in practice for several months i'm really struggling i had literally like no patients uh, I lived in this apartment with my wife and my little dog. Um, I had kind of a pop up office that, you know, if I had somebody that would see me, I would try to, meet, you know, I rented out space from an anesthesiologist actually. And all of a sudden, I get a call from a producer uh, from Dr. 90210 telling me that your episode's going to air like in four days. And I was like, what? And so we, um, I actually made up my own press releases. I mailed them out to and, and uh, faxed them and emailed them out. Uh and the day that that show, and I had these ideas that I was gonna be this big TV star that, oh, I'm gonna be all over this episode. I show up on the episode, and within like I literally had maybe two or three minutes of screen time, they showed my going away party and I was gone, and that was it. <laughs> and and the show literally, it was a half-hour show. I was probably in about two or three minutes of it. But the one thing that that they put in there, which I still I mean, I remember this day, is my old boss Dr. Ellen Bogan said, um, I wanted him to stay here in Beverly Hills. I made him an offer he couldn't refuse, and he refused it. He's going to Rochester, Michigan. And the next day after that show aired, my practice just exploded. Uh, Yeah, and it was, I mean, it was such a blessing to me because I was so struggling. Nobody knew who I was. I had no friends in town. I had no colleagues. I sent letters to 25 plastic surgeons asking them um, if they would potentially take me under their wing. Nobody said yes. They all turned me down or just didn't even bother replying. Um, And I was even going to like family doctor's offices, bringing bagels and juice and trying to get anybody to pay any attention to me get, you know, help me with some type of patients. And it wasn't until this show all of a sudden airs, my practice explodes. And within just days, I was just so inundated with patients. Uh, and so, yeah, and so that that really was the beginning of the of my journey as a private practice plastic surgeon.
1: That's something I tell people often. I think if you are dedicated to what you do and you just kind of put your head down and and keep serving the patient in your case, something's going to give at some point. And you And it could happen tomorrow. It could happen in a year. You never know. So just kind of keep doing what you're doing. And and like you said, it just took that one, a few minutes, and then you're, people were able to find you.
0: Yeah, and since then, you know, things have morphed. I did a lot of TV for many years because that showed me the power of TV. And I was a regular on Rachel Ray's talk show. I was regular on Dr. Oz's and The Doctors and stuff. And then, um, really, I thought I'd hit the pinnacle of success. I had my... I had two books come out, both of them became bestsellers. And, you know, in plastic surgery, we, early in surgery, we had this this, um, saying to cure, to cut is to cure, or the only way to heal is with cold steel. And as doctors, as surgeons, basically our goal is to bring people to the operating room. And ideally, as a surgeon, you want to be performing big operations because that's what makes you feel like you're accomplished. So if you're a general surgeon, that operation is the Whipple. It's like a 10-hour big cancer operation. If you're a plastic surgeon, that surgery is probably a facelift uh, because patients may trust almost anybody to to do a little lipo on them, but if they're going to trust you with their face, you know that you've got to be good and have a good reputation. And so for many years, Amy, I actually gauged the success of my practice on, on how many facelifts I was doing. And I got to a point in my practice where I thought I hit the pinnacle, where I had literally a year waiting list. I had people flying all across the country coming in to see me to have facelifts and other surgeries done. Uh, And then I had a patient who completely changed their trajectory of my career. And this is a woman who was in her 60s who came in to have a facelift done. And she had such a horrible complication from it. Not her fault, not my fault, just sometimes bad things happen that it sent me into a tailspin. I question whether I should be in medicine altogether, whether plastic surgery, you know, doing these cosmetic procedures, is it worthwhile? Um, and that really got me into looking at non-invasive ways to turn back the clock. And that eventually became my latest book, Younger for Life.
1: Yeah, and I can't wait to talk about the book. You generously sent over a copy of it, and I've really enjoyed it. And I think, oh, thank you. you know, to, to start with that, you're kind of known as the holistic Plastic surgeon, can you tell us a little bit about what that means?
0: Yeah, so this woman had this terrible complication, and like I said, it really sent me into a ton, a lot of reflection of, you know, what am I doing with my practice? What am I, you know, is this what I really want to do? Is just all these cosmetic operations? Um, and so it really came down to I started really thinking that the goal of plastic surgery, the goal of being a surgeon, was always to bring people to the operating room, and I realized that that goal is wrong. It's the opposite. It should be to keep people out of the operating room. And so I started actually, you know, as a plastic surgeon, I went through, and I mentioned all my training and stuff like that, but in that training is very, very little to no preventative treatment or non-surgical treatment. We had a little bit with injections, um, a, a little bit with lasers and chemical peels, but mainly it was all surgery. And so I've decided that I was going to really start looking at Plastic surgery from a different perspective, what I consider a holistic perspective, and that is using plastic surgery only as a last resort. So I started studying um, books and, and papers from uh, alternative medicine specialists, from uh, skincare specialists, from nutritionists, uh, from dermatologists, and I started creating this idea of autojuvenation. And it's this idea that you can that your body has the regenerative abilities to rejuvenate itself. You know, our body has such regenerative capabilities that we don't realize. It wants to heal itself. It wants to work and function optimally, but we need to give it the tools to do that. And so spending thousands of hours studying this, I came up with um, this t- concept called auto and it's based off of five things. What you eat, when you eat, nutritional supplements, skincare, and non-invasive treatments. And by looking at those five things, I strongly believe that the vast majority of people can look and feel their best and not feel that they have to go under the knife to turn back the clock.
1: Wow, that's that's really incredible. And I think that's probably music to the ears of a lot of people. I know as a derm provider, a lot of my patients are really afraid of, of going under the knife. knife. And I'm, I'm very honest when I think that that's what will ultimately give them the result they're looking for. However, to have these other tools that we can present them with because there are some people who they're not gonna do it no matter what. They really, they're really scared. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about like what are the the four main causes that we're seeing? You talk about this in the book. What are the four main causes we're seeing that are are causing these signs of aging in, in our in our patient populations and with ourselves as well.
0: Yeah, the first cause, that uh, so definitely I kind of focus on these four causes of aging of the skin. And the first cause would be collagen degradation. So our skin is composed about 70 to 80% of collagen. And uh, and we lose about 1% of the thickness of collagen every year, starting probably in about our mid-20s. Uh, In women, once they go through menopause, that increases to 2% a year. And that's one reason why we may see women who are in their 70s and 80s and their skin can be tissue paper thin to the point where they get scratched and their skin tears. So the first thing we want to really focus on is that thinning of the collagen that occurs with age and focusing on how do we get that process to slow down. Second cause of aging is chronic inflammation. So inflammation can be acute or it can be chronic. Acute inflammation can actually be a good thing. You know, when we get a cut on our skin and our body tries to heal that cut, it creates acute inflammation around that injury. Laser treatments, chemical peels, these all function by creating acute inflammation to help rejuvenate our skin. It's the chronic inflammation that is the problem and the chronic inflammation that can build up with time, causing our skin to age prematurely. Third cause of aging of the skin is free radicals or oxidation. So free radicals are these damaging molecules. They're actually a, um, it's kind of a consequence or a byproduct of just normal metabolism. So our body is just being alive, we create these free radicals. And free radicals, if they're not neutralized, can damage the DNA of our cells. Now our body also creates natural antioxidants. Antioxidants will neutralize free radicals so that they don't damage the DNA of our cells. But the problem is, is that depending on our lifestyle, our bodies may be inundated with free radicals. You know, free radicals from eating ultra-processed foods, from smoking, from pollution in the air, from other types of environmental exposures can cause our bodies to have so many free radicals essentially attacking it that our bodies can't necessarily keep up. And that's a state we call oxidative stress. And then the final cause of facial aging, or of skin aging, not facial, but skin aging in general that I focus on is is a buildup of cellular waste. So our, our cells, as they're functioning, they create waste products. And these waste products are typically proteins like used organelles um, and uh, even used uh, an old mitochondria. And if our cells get filled up, basically built up with this intracellular waste product, then, and we, can't, we don't clean it out, then our cells don't function as optimally. And the way to clean out this intracellular waste is a process called autophagy. Autophagy means self-eating, and it's our body's ways. It's our body's kind of process to recycle this intracellular waste and use that as energy. Uh, and the only way to get our body to go into the autophagy mode is to give it a period of time where we're not feeding it uh, fuel, where we're basically taking time away from eating. And we can talk about how intermittent fasting can really play a part in that.
1: Wow, I have so many follow-up questions. That's that's so much tangible information. So I don't know if you've ever, you've ever heard the quote where, you know, whatever, every bite that you take is either feeding disease or fighting it. It kind of sounds like it's very similar to the aging of our skin, right? Everything that we do, our lifestyle, what we're eating at any moment is either helping our cause or helping our skin to age even more.
0: Yeah. And that's actually something I put in the book. You know, it's, it's true. I, you know, for me, though, at the same time, I'm trying to, you know, you want to not, it's hard because that's true. And you want to encourage people to have healthy habits, but we also don't want to shame them. So every time they put something in their mouth, they're like, ah, is this going to, you know, feed my, my uh, you know, make me feel younger or make me feel older or, you know, help me or hurt me. Um, but definitely that's the case. And really, you know, the way I look at overall anti-aging and especially of the skin, it's like you're building a house. And when people think, oh, I want to get Botox, I want to look younger, or I want to get a facelift. That's like the spire at the top of the house. The foundation of the house truly is the food that you eat because that's really what's going to set the stage for how quickly you age and even the quality and the appearance of your skin. And and what we're finding more and more is that the food that we eat really does impact how our skin looks.
1: I don't think I fully understood that until the volume of my patients started to increase and I could really tell a difference in their lifestyle and the way their skin looked. And of course, you know, some of the way our skin ages is genetic, but a lot of it is really in our control and I could really see it firsthand and it made me kind of, Reflect on my own lifestyle and what I was eating to, to make those changes. And I know people are listening to this and they're thinking, "Well, this all sounds very scary. What can I do about it?" And in the book, you have something called the 21 Day Jumpstart. Is can you tell us a little bit about that and give maybe the audience some tips?
0: Yeah, so we ended up taking the principles of autojuvenation. So once again, what to eat, when you eat, nutritional supplements, skincare products. We took out the. treatments to try to make it simple. So really four of those things. And we actually took uh, a number of people uh, and had them go through this 21-day jumpstart where they ate a certain collagen uh, supporting diet, um, removing certain things from their diet that definitely is... is, uh, causes premature aging of the skin, like ultra-processed foods, foods with excess added sugars, and that type of thing. Um, We put them on a certain very limited number of nutritional supplements, and one of them that's, I think, key is collagen. Uh, And then we had them go on a very simple but effective skincare uh, regimen, Uh, one that I call the two-minutes, five-years-younger skincare routine. Uh, And then finally, uh, so we start them doing this on week one, where they basically clean up their diet the first week. They use the supplements, they use the skincare. Um, And then in weeks two and three, we actually put in just a little bit of intermittent fasting. Uh, Intermittent fasting is otherwise known as time-restricted eating, where you shorten your eating window during the day. Simply put, you skip breakfast. (laughs) And so for two days in weeks two and three, we had them uh, stop eating at 8 p.m., and then they didn't eat food again until noon the next day, essentially skipping breakfast. Uh, and then we put them on what I call an autophagy-supporting diet, where we had them take ser- eat certain foods to help promote the autophagy process. Now, autophagy, I mentioned earlier, the, that kind of buildup of cellular waste that can cause our cells not to function as, uh, as youthfully, as efficiently. Uh, autophagy is our body's process to use that intracellular waste products essentially as energy. And it starts kicking in once you stop eating for approximately 12 hours. And so if you do a fast for 12 to 16 hours, it gives your body a chance then to, let's say, to run out of fuel and to start using that intracellular proteins and waste process fuel itself. By doing that, it helps to clean out those inside the cells and our cells function more effectively. And essentially, it's an anti-aging process from within. So on weeks two and three, we had them uh, for, once again, just two days of those weeks. They intermittent fasted for 16 hours, and then for the rest of that day, they ate a uh, uh, autophagy supporting type of a diet to help promote that autophagy process to go on even as they're eating. And we found after three weeks these great changes in their skin. Now, you know, you and I were healthcare professionals, like we know that that's doing three weeks and, and changing your diet, taking something, that's not gonna cause you to look like you had a facelift but we had so many people would say oh yeah I went out to with my friends for dinner and they didn't know I was doing this but they're like wow they would tell me unsolicited your skin looks great you must be doing something different to it we even had some people who did it they had strangers come up to them on the street saying you know th- I just want to know like what's your skincare hack because your skin looks so great yeah and so we just found that people that they they their skin was glowing. They found that, that, that it looked healthier. They lost a few unwanted pounds during those three weeks. Uh, and it really was a really nice jumpstart for so many people.
1: Okay. So I have a couple follow-up questions. Did you do the two days of time-restricted eating just to make it easier on them? Or is there a reason why only two out of the seven?
0: Uh, we wanted to make sure that this is something that most people can do. You know, And you know, for me, I intermittent fast usually a couple of times a week. Um, if if I were like oh you have to intermittent fast seven days this week like I could do that it's not a huge deal but you know I also for most of my life did not intermittent fast and the thought of even doing it to do a sixteen hour fast was pretty daunting and so for some people not to eat for sixteen hours is a big lift for them and so we really wanted to make this accessible and doable for everybody doing a bit, a bit more of the intermittent fasting by by all means. Feel free to do that. The only thing is that if you do limit to two meals a day, you also wanna make sure you're getting enough of your macros. And the big thing that we wanna make sure that we're not limiting is protein. Uh, Collagen is a protein. I mentioned earlier that collagen degradation is one of the main causes of skin aging. And collagen is a large protein. And if you're not getting enough protein in your diet, you know then that could be hurting that collagen um, proliferating process. Uh, and so, so for us, like I said, I, I put that in there because I wanted to make it easy and accessible for everybody. But also at the same time, I didn't want people to get confused of like, okay, now they're not eating enough protein and they're hurting in one area and helping in another.
1: right. That's smart. So you said you do it about three days a week, usually for yourself.
0: For me? Yeah, um, it depends. Yeah, anywhere okay. from two to three days is what okay. I kind of average. Uh, for me, I operate two to three days a week, and those mornings, I, I have tried intermittent fasting, and I don't operate as well if I'm intermittent fasting. And so I usually will have a high protein, um, low carb breakfast on the mornings that I operate.
1: And how do you feel about carbs in general when it comes to the health of our skin?
0: Um, I think that in general, there's a, you have to look at carbs. It's a macronutrient that we all need. You know, So I'm not somebody who's necessarily keto, keto, um, but at the same time, I think there's a difference between good and, and not as good carbs. So refined carbs, the carbs that basically when you're eating white rice, white pasta, uh, white bread that can result in insulin spikes, and and, and ideally, if you're going to have carbs, I do encourage people to have uh, carbs either in the in in the form of fruits and vegetables, or if you are having grains, make sure they're whole grains because then you're going to have still the fiber and the pulp in it that's going to slow down the digestion process. It's going to reduce the amount of sugar spikes, so that glycemic index and glycation ends up being lower. Uh, I mentioned earlier one of the causes of skin aging is inflammation, chronic inflammation. And when you're eating a lot of, let's say regularly eating a lot of white bread or white rice or white pasta, you can get these insulin spikes, okay, from uh, the fact that that, that that carb is in a, such a refined form, it, 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 as it uh, is digested very quickly. And when you get a lot of these kind of chronic spikes of sugar, you can get chronic spikes of insulin. And we know that when the, you get chronic insulin spikes, that can eventually lead to insulin resistance that can lead to chronic inflammation. And there are studies that that do show that high levels of insulin in the blood uh, have been correlated actually with inflammatory skin issues like acne.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I tell this story to my followers often, but when I was pregnant, I had gestational diabetes. And prior to that, I had been vegetarian. So my carb intake was higher than usual. usual. So once I got diagnosed with gestational diabetes, I had to start adding in some more lean animal protein again just so that I could balance out and, and not rely on the carbs so much. And I noticed a dramatic difference in my skin in that period. So like after that, um, you know, I think I was diagnosed like 28 weeks. So after that period when I changed my diet and kind of stuck to more just fruits and vegetables for my car- carbohydrate load, I noticed a dramatic in- uh, increase in, in the health, the appearance of my skin. So it's, it's something anecdotal. I've seen. Mm -hmm. And I also see it in my patients with acne as well.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because even just 10 years ago, if you were to make a social media post about how, oh, if you've got acne issues, maybe try going off dairy. There'd be people coming out of the woodwork to attack you. I've had people attacking me. Like, there's no evidence to that. Don't lie and, and all this stuff. And I think more and more, especially over the last five to seven years, um, there have been more and more people realizing that, yes, the food that you eat can have tremendous impacts on your skin. And now I'm seeing even a lot of my dermatology colleagues who, you know, previously would just talk about skincare and now talking about the effects of diet uh, on the skin, which I think is, is huge. I mean, but at the same time being realistic that, you know, yes, it's not the, the, the cure for all of our concerns with skin aging, um, but it does play a, a major role that I think a lot of us don't realize, and a lot of us, you know, didn't uh, acknowledge in the past.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think as providers, we have to understand that the science is always evolving. And if there's someone coming to us with this, with an anecdote, and they're experiencing this, not to just discount it because we don't yet have the data to support it. Exactly. Speaking of which, you mentioned collagen supplementation, Mm -hmm. and that's something that has been very controversial amongst providers for the last few years. I think the data is mounting more and more, but how, how... I guess, for how long have you recommended collagen um, supplements
0: and why? So I have for many years. Um, So I went through, once again, kind of a period where I really re-examined, you know, I was a traditional plastic surgeon for, um, gosh, over a decade in private practice to the point where, you know, I would have patients come in to see me. They'd be on a list of supplements. they go, which ones of these should I take, doctor? And I didn't know anything about supplements. Nobody taught me anything. I didn't take the time to learn it. So I just tell him, go off all of it. You know, you don't need any of it. Just go off all of it. This is what I taught. Just stop smoking and go off all your supplements. And then as I opened my eyes up to what I didn't know, and I think that's a that's an issue with traditional medicine is a lot of physicians don't know what they don't know. Okay, and we'll talk about the collagen thing in a second. Um, but I started realizing all this stuff I didn't know. I didn't know about supplements, and so I started really studying it and. I ended up actually regarding supplements. I actually started looking at literature. I compared the literature in our surgical um, journals, Uh, a lot of it wound healing literature, people who are getting different uh, nutritional, like protein powders and things like that, and and protein supplementation to try to heal wounds. And I combined that with um, the holistic, the books that I was reading from holistic practitioners and gut health experts and skin experts. And I actually created my own uh, line of and, and my own plan of pre- and post-operative supplementation.
1: Oh, wow. Uh,
0: and it included things like arginine and glutamine and uh, and then uh, omega-3 fatty acids and, and all this stuff. And I created this, this huge plan. And interesting, and I put my patients on it, and they did really well with it. And I had patients who would go on to these supplements. And then after surgery, I'd say, hey, you know, you should be on Because we give them, it's basically two weeks before surgery, and then you're on it for a month or two afterwards and then they're done essentially and they say well can I keep taking some of these because you know i've had people say oh my joints feel so much better now i've had people say oh my skin is cleared up my hair is getting thicker my digestion so much better um, because adding things like the probiotics like the omega 3s you know like protein people found that they're that they actually helped with a lot of their other issues Interestingly enough, now what I find very fascinating is that there are companies, and one specifically that I'm now starting to use their supplements, um, that have... I never published this anywhere because my worry is that some some patient would read it, they would take a supplement, they would have a post-surgical complication, let's say a hematoma, that had nothing to do with their supplements, but then the surgeon's like, oh, well, you got a hematoma because of Dr. Yoon. It's his fault. Go call his office, you know? Like, I do not want I don't to get blamed for anybody's complication. So I just kept it in my office. But now there are these companies coming out with these protocols, and they're like the same thing that I came up with like 12 years ago that I never shared. And I'm like, wow, I was actually onto something because other people are doing their own research and coming up with the same type of a thing. So I think, you know, what it came, the reason why I'm saying the story is because as traditional physicians, we don't know what we don't know. And one of the things we don't know about in general are supplements. And so physicians are loath to admit that they don't know something. And so they will make statements um, that are generalizing as a way to protect their own, part of it's like a turf thing. And part of it, I think maybe their own self-confidence. And so they'll say, well, collagen supplements don't work. And the fact is, they will say, you know, you can ask, the question then is you can, is to say, okay, have you looked at the actual studies? Have you actually looked at the studies? And they're going to poo-poo you. You know, I, this is what happened with breast implants back in the day. You know, I was the same way. I'm like, oh, breast implants don't make people sick. Did I look at the studies? No, I was just taught this. Like, this was dogma. So the dogma in traditional medicine is that supplements don't help collagen doesn't work. And I have so many people leave comments on my, uh, on my uh, social media channel saying, my family doctor says, don't bother with collagen, doesn't work, you're wasting your money. And the fact is that if you actually look at the studies, the studies, just like you said, they are building up. There was a meta-analysis in 2021 of over 1,100 people who took 90 days of collagen supplementation. Hydrolyzed collagen peptides, it's very important, it should be hydrolyzed collagen peptides and they found a statistically significant improvement in skin hydration, in wrinkles, uh, and elasticity. There have been prospective randomized placebo-controlled trials where you put people on hydrolyzed collagen peptide supplements for a couple of months, then they've actually biopsied their skin afterwards and found an increase in the amount of collagen in their skin. So I didn't know any of this, so I ended up doing the research and finding, wow, there are all these studies that support the benefits of collagen collagen to their skin. Now, it's funny, there's a doctor on TikTok, and I think he's probably on Instagram too. Uh, He's probably in his 60s. He's a weight loss doctor. Uh, He's got a big bushy beard, and he speaks with a lot of authority as if he's like the authority. And I mean, everything he says, I'm like, wow, that makes sense. I believe it. But he made a video basically saying, if if you are taking collagen supplements, you're wasting your money, just take this. And he showed a box of gelatin say, just use gelatin. It's the same thing. And I thought at the time, like, oh, you know, I disagree with him, but I'm not going to get an argument with this guy. Well, fast forward, just a couple months ago, I see his video pop up again. And he's actually standing watching his original video. And then a few seconds in, he swipes it away and he goes, you know, doctors are loath to admit when they are wrong, but I was wrong. And he said, I looked at the studies and college of supplements do work, they do help improve your skin. And I was like, wow, it's such a, a, a nice thing to see a physician say, you know what, I actually didn't do my research before, which is essentially what he said. He's like, you know, I believe I have this method of thought, you know, and I believe it didn't work. And when I actually then looked at the studies, This is why we do studies. This is why we practice medicine is because it's a practice and we are learning uh, and we can be wrong.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is there, I know people are going to ask, is there a brand of of collagen or maybe a couple brands that you trust that you would
0: recommend? So full disclosure, I have my own skincare and supplement line. Um, And so my top selling supplement is collagen because we have so many people who subscribe to it and they take it every day. Um, so just to let you know that that's obviously my favorite, there's no taste to it. Uh, we have it at my um, online store, younbeauty.com. I think- And key- it's a powder? It's a powder, yep. It's it's a powder that you mix typically with hot drinks or smoothies. Uh, it will not uh, dissolve well into a cold drink, but if you have like a cup of coffee or even, I I drink it with just hot water in the morning. Um, and you can't taste it at all. Uh, or you can mix it into a smoothie or a, a, acai bowl, that type of a thing. Um, but you know, the, the big key, really, though, is to look for hydrolyzed collagen peptides. One of the reasons why people say that collagen doesn't work is because it's a large protein. And you and I know that collagen creams are BS. You know, because it's such a large protein, it's not going to penetrate the, the stratum corneum of our skin. Um, and so it just sits on the surface of our skin, acting like a moisturizer. Um, and then the, the argument then with collagen supplements is it's a large protein, your body starts breaking it down. How do you know that that collagen is actually going to be anything different than an, any other protein that you eat? And we know because of those studies. But the key really, and the reason why I say hydrolyzed collagen peptides is because you then take this large protein and you actually break it down into individual peptides and amino acids. Peptides are a combination of a couple of amino acids. That way it's very small and your body will then absorb it much more easily. Um, And so there are some collagens that are not hydrolyzed collagen peptides or hydrolyzed collagen. The term hydrolyzed is super important because that's where you break that collagen down so it's much smaller and much easier for your body to absorb. That's what you want to look for.
1: Okay, that's a great pointer. And does the source of the collagen matter? in your experience?
0: Um, it's believed, yes, um, you know, cause there are sources ideally, I mean, there's marine and there's bovine is what's, what's most popular. I wouldn't tell you that one's necessarily better than the other. Um, I know some people like the taste of one more than the other. Uh, ours is bovine collagen, but I do know that there's some really good marine out there as well. Um, other than that, I mean, quality, I think within general, quality of food is important. You know, I mean, there's a difference between let's say grass fed uh, beef and conventionally raised beef. Uh, there's a difference in their nutrition profiles and the omega-3 fatty acid profiles and the conjugated linoleic acid profiles in those types of, of uh, meat. And so ideally higher quality in general is better, uh, but I don't know of any studies that have necessarily proven that if it's, you know, if this uh, collagen supplement comes from grass-fed beef, that's different than this one from conventional. But we do know in general eating uh, grass-fed, pastured, wild-caught those types of meats are in general better for us than the conventionally raised ones.
1: This podcast is brought to you by, well, me. Skinthusiast.com is your one-stop shop for all things skin and beauty. We have so many blog posts that you could educate yourself on skincare all day long. If you want a deeper dive, I hold your hand through creating a skincare regimen from scratch in my comprehensive skincare guide. And we have the cutest crewnecks for anyone who's in their skin era. If you're a Skinthusiast, you're going to love it here. Head to Skinthusiast.com forward slash shop. I know for those listening that this probably seems like a lot of kind of science-heavy information, and I think that's where it's um, helpful to have books like Younger for Life because you've kind of combed through the research for us, and Kinda of, you can you give us literally a jump start. So that's one thing I, I love about the book so much. And we did have some some questions come in for you specifically when I mentioned that you were gonna be on the show. And you mentioned breast implant illness. So I think we should start with that question. Um the the reader or the follower was curious if it's something that they should avoid? Should they avoid implants? They don't have them yet, but knowing what we know now about breast implant illness, and maybe you can talk a little bit about it for those who don't know, but is this something, is this a procedure we should be avoiding?
0: Um, Not necessarily. I think breast implants, you know, so let me just give you the history of them in general. Um, So, Implants have been around for decades. In 1992, there was a in the early '90s there was a huge uproar. A lot of women came coming forward, believing that their implants were causing them systemic illnesses, basically causing their hair to fall out, causing them to get rashes, joint pain, arthritis-type symptoms, and stuff like that, autoimmune-type symptoms. And so, in 1992, the FDA imposed a moratorium on silicone breast implants. Uh, Dow Chemical had a class-action lawsuit. They went bankrupt. It was a big deal. Uh, And so between the years of 1992 and 2006, we only were allowed to use silicone implants as part of an FDA-approved study. Uh, During that time, we were able to use saline-filled implants, saltwater-filled implants. Come uh, uh, 2006, the FDA uh, lifts the moratorium on silicone implants, putting them back on the market, saying that they were safe. Uh, Now, the studies that actually looked at these implants, in general, the main things that they looked at with these implants were not necessarily the symptoms, that these women were complaining about. They looked more at the physical surgical complications, capsular contracture, excess scar tissue, hematoma, bleeding, uh, infection, implant displacement, moving out of place, things like that. Yes, they did have some some questionnaires about the systemic issues, but it really wasn't upfront and the big part of it. Now, Plastic surgeons took this as uh, support for their belief that impl- in general, that implants are safe, that people don't get sick from them. And there's a belief, and this is what I was taught actually through my training, is that if women think that their implants are making them sick, they're wrong. It's something else. It could even be psychosomatic. It could all be in their head. Okay. And this is, I mean, when you have the vast majority of plastic surgeons are men, here you go. So fast forward about 10 more years and websites, a couple of websites pop up uh, about breast implant illness uh, from people who had implants. They had their implants taken out and they started feeling much better. Facebook Facebook groups start getting popular. Women start joining Facebook groups by the tens of thousands, telling their stories about how their implants made them sick and how they got better afterwards. It was when all this started happening that I started reassessing my beliefs and I realized I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was always taught that implants are safe, that, hey, if people have these issues, the the studies support that implants are safe. So I started going back and I started looking at these studies myself. And I started looking at the studies from breast implant illness advocates that they started posting on their websites. And I started realizing I haven't heard of these studies. These are studies that were performed in in different journals that I don't read, like like, uh, uh, rheumatology journals and internal medicine journals. And so I was one of the first plastic surgeons to go public stating that I believe that breast implant illness is real. Now I still do breast augmentation. It's still one of my top most popular surgeries. I don't think everybody gets it, but I think it's important to realize that some people do appear to get sick from their implants. Uh, And the, the backlash of me coming forward publicly with this was pretty swift. I had friends of mine who called me up and said, you should not say this stuff anymore. I had people obviously uh, very upset with me, but that's okay because I had to put out what I felt was the truth and be an advocate for my patients and for women in general. So fast forward now, things have changed. Um, You know, with People who have other physicians who've come forward, there now are studies that do show anywhere from about 55 to 85% of women who have implants removed after having these symptoms seem to get better. But we don't know why. That's the problem. We don't know why some people may be getting sick from their implants. It doesn't appear to have to do with just being silicone implants because saline implants, people get sick from it too. And I don't think it's the majority of women. We don't have a percentage of like what percentage of women who have implants get BII. We don't know. There are studies that are being done, and I do credit the societies that they are really pushing this forward. Every major national plastic surgery meeting now typically has a forum on BII, on breast implant illness. So for those people who are listening to go, geez, I'm thinking about implants, should I get them done? Really, the answer is, is you want to be an informed patient. Breast implant illness, in my opinion, is real. I don't think it happens to the majority of women. I think it's a relatively small subset, and we don't know why they get it. The treatment is to have your implants taken out. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't know what the risk factors are. There was one small study that showed that if you have a history of autoimmune disease or maybe severe allergies, you might be at higher risk of BII, but we just don't know. And so, yeah, if you already have, let's say, rheumatologic issues, then it may not be in your best interest to put implants in you. Maybe if you've got a long family history, you know, that type of thing, then you may want to reconsider Um, But the data is still being compiled and we just don't know everything about it.
1: So for your own patients, is this kind of the screening you go through is, you know, any rheumatoid patients, people with autoimmune diseases, anything else that you look for and might be a red flag for you before?
0: Nope. Unfortunately, that's all that we have, you know, and I just educate them on it. And I tell them, look, this is a possibility. You could get this even if you don't have any history of any autoimmune type issues like this can happen to you. Um, I just saw a patient just um, right before we got on this call, it was a reason why I was a couple minutes late, um, who was my patient, who I put implants in many years ago, who she's having some odd, odd symptoms. We don't know if it's BII or not, but, you know, this is what we call a diagnosis of exclusion. So she'd like to keep her implants. And I said, look, let's let's get you worked up with the appropriate specialist to make sure there's not another reason why you may be having these symptoms. And as an aside, I've actually had a few patients who come to see me saying, I think I have BII. We've talked about removing implants and stuff like that. Then they disappear for a few years. And then they have come back to see me for something else. And I ask them, what happened with your implants in the BII? And they go, oh, you know what? I saw a functional medicine doctor. I cleaned up my diet. I'm on certain supplements. I cleaned up my environment and my symptoms went away. So we just don't know. That's the problem. You know, we don't know. And in general, what I encourage you to do if you're thinking, let's say you have BII, would be to work through your physician, make sure that there aren't other causes of it, unless you just want to get rid of your implants anyway. You know, if you just don't want them, then by all means, take them out. Uh, But if you want to keep them, then definitely make sure that you look at other potential causes of these symptoms. You know, I have patients who come to see me in consultation and I go over all these symptoms of BII and they stop me. They go, Dr. Yoon, I have BII. And I go, but you don't have implants. And they go, I know, but I've got all those symptoms. And it's like, okay, so... Yeah, and that that can happen too. That's
1: a very good point too. I think whenever a disease or illness kind of is in the forefront of social media, especially, it can sometimes we, you know it, it, the the symptoms are very nonspecific, yeah. so sometimes we can attribute it, uh, something else yeah. to that. But ultimately, it's if it's getting you to your provider and you're taking that first step. I think that's what's most important.
0: Yeah, and with society, with there's so much bi out out there. I mean, yeah, it's funny when I went through medical school, we go through each of these body systems, we learn these diseases, and like a good friend of mine, like every time we would go through like this this physiology of this body part or the urinary system or the digestive, like he would always have symptoms of that system that we're studying. So the body is a very interesting... Um, it's an interesting thing, and um, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye, that's for sure.
1: My, If my PA school friends are listening to this, they're going to be laughing because I was that person. Every, <laughs> every lecture, I was like, you guys, I have that. I know it. I, I already have that disease got, every time. i got mad cow disease. Yeah. I know I've got mad cow yes. disease. I
0: ate beef when I was in England. I got mad cow. Yeah, and, yeah you know, that's, you're probably, how, okay. that's how I was.
1: Okay, so some other questions that came in from the audience. If somebody knows that they want to potentially pursue a facelift later in life, do they need to avoid... Procedures like threads, sculpture, you know, filler now while they're in their 20s, 30s,
0: 40s. So um, I'm sure you you know Dr. Um, uh, Subio. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of Dr. Sia? So he actually just literally yesterday did an Instagram live on this and I haven't had a chance to watch it. So this is an interesting topic that's been brought up very recently in that do not do collagen stimulating treatments like threads, like sculpture. Do they cause a potential issue for surgery later on? And the answer, and 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 Dr. Subio is great. He's a good friend of mine. We rag each other on social media all the time for fun. Um, but really, there is a question of do you get scar tissue that kind of basically gets in your way? And the and and he had this um, uh, a, a survey that he put out to facial plastic surgeons asking what their experience was. And I did answer it. And my answer really in this situation is it could. Um, so in general, I, I'm not a huge fan of the collagen-stimulating treatments other than Sculptra. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the threads. Um, and I have had some patients where I've, and I do a lot of faceless, I have some patients where I lift the face and you see scar tissue there that shouldn't be there. I have more seen that, though, in things like liposuction under the chin or some of the heat-based devices, people getting, let's say, laser lipo. Um, those are the types of things I'm more concerned about. Lately, there also is a kind of a new category of devices. The first one was like a thermitite where you stick a probe under the skin, you try to heat up the skin from the inside. Uh, Anytime, what I tell patients, anytime you have any type of an invasive procedure, you're going to create scar tissue, period. Some of them will create more than others. You know, if somebody's thinking about having facelift, they go, I'm thinking about getting, let's say, face tight, which is uh, uh, radio frequency. From the inside and the outside, or I'm thinking of getting Renuvion, which is plasma energy to heat up the skin from the inside, I encourage them not to have that done prior to a facelift because we know that that's going to create a good amount of scar tissue and that can definitely make the facelift harder. At the same time, I do facelifts, secondary facelifts on people where they've had one or two facelifts already. Um, it's, it just makes the surgery more challenging. I don't know that's going to put you at higher risk of complications, but it may make the surgery a little more challenging.
1: Okay. That's good to know. And in your practice, what non or less invasive procedures are you a fan of? Are there any that you employ for your own patients?
0: So yeah, we have a complete skincare and uh, laser and injection um, practice. So I have five injectors um, who uh, do filler and Botox. Um, we have, I have two estheticians. So probably the most popular treatment right now, esthetician-wise, is Morpheus 8. Uh, radio frequency microneedling. And we've been getting really nice change with that. I get that underneath my chin every so often. Um, so that's super popular. Obviously, Botox, we just started using Daxify recently. We haven't used it long enough to know the longevity. I'm hoping that we can get six months out of it. Uh, I just injected my mom last night. She was visiting and I'm like, hey, I, don't, I only she only comes to visit maybe twice a year. I'm like, well, hey, if this works six months and that may work really well for you. Um, but we're not six months out of getting it in the office, so we're still waiting to see, does it truly last as long as we hope?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the most common questions I get is about Morpheus 8 and the unwanted side effect of fat loss in the face. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, you know, interesting. This is something that's been a topic for me for many years because back in 2005, I think it was, um, I wrote a, I sent a letter that was published in our White Journal about Thermage and fat loss. My first employee ever... Uh, came to see me for fat grafting because she had thermage treatments and believed that it created a loss of fat in her face. Uh, And she was very upset with it. And uh, she ended up becoming my first employee. She still works with me today. Um, And so I did at that time, I actually did a a facelift on a patient who had thermage and I found scar tissue uh, under the surface as I was elevating the, the, the facelift flap. And the only procedure that she had had was thermage. So I wrote this paper, um, it was more of a letter, and it got published, I showed, I sent photos and stuff like that. And then not long afterwards, the company sent me a cease and desist letter uh, threatening me not to talk about it anymore. Now this was back when it was owned by a different company than it's owned by now. So I have no hard feelings for the company that owns Thermage now. Uh, I don't know, if it's Solta or something like that, but this was a different company way back in the day that, that threatened to sue me for writing this paper in our white journal. So I'm very well aware of the fact that if you create uh, heat below the surface of the skin. I mean, we have a, t- a treatment called Sculpture, which is non-invasive fat reduction where you use a laser, you target the heat, you target the fat, heat it up to a certain temperature, and the fat cells die. Um, so I do believe that certain treatments can definitely increase the risk of it. I think I'm not as worried about um, Morpheus 8 because you're not going typically past the skin. Like it's an actual intradermal treatment. Sometimes probably don't even go into the dermis depending on how deep you're going with it. My more concerns would be things like, like uh, uh, Thermage, which supposedly their settings and stuff have changed. It doesn't do that anymore. Uh, and then all therapy, you know, using ultrasound to, to kind of target that. If you have somebody who's maybe going too deep with it, could you develop scar tissue from that and fat loss? Uh, I think it's definitely possible. Um, so those would be more of my concerns. I haven't seen any issues with Morpheus 8 yet. Um, like I said, I'm not too, too concerned with it just because of the fact that it's a surface treatment. And, you know, I mean, our skin is fairly thick in general. And is it going to truly get all the way down to the fat? It's possible, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, it's something that's kind of going viral on social media. So I always tell patients, after you have any sort of procedure, you're so hyper-aware of every little thing yeah. on your face. You're staring at yourself in the mirror, things that were there before you might be noticing for the first time. So we have totally to take agree. all that into account, you know, with these types of things. Totally agree. So for somebody who is... Considering cosmetic treatments, I know that each and every single patient is going to be different on what you might recommend, but what are some of your like bang-for-your-buck treatments that you think someone who's just starting, who maybe is on more of a budget, could could seek out?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think the first thing for people who are listening today, especially if they don't have access to a med spa, dermatologist, plastic surgeon, um, you know, anybody like that, the easiest thing to start with, and probably the most economical, is red light therapy. Now, red light therapy comes in a lot of different ways. Uh, um, modes and methods. Uh, There are handheld devices where you treat literally a quadrant of your face at a time. I'm not a big fan of those because it takes forever to do the treatment. Um, There are tabletop devices that you put your face in front of. There are creepy looking masks that you walk around with and scare your spouse while you wear that. Um, And then there are even full red light therapy beds that people can use. Red light therapy, I find, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it, you know, plastic surgeons don't know anything about red light therapy. You know, you go to our nobody's talking about red light therapy. But I have a lot of my friends in the alternative health space, and they're all talking about it. Dermatologists, I feel like they've got a good knowledge of it, but still it's not front and center. I'm not quite sure why. The belief with red light therapy is how it works is that the energy from the red light uh, basically is... Um, transfused into the mitochondria of your cells. The mitochondria are the powerhouses of your cells. They are the—that's um, what gives your cells energy, essentially. And what it supposedly does is that red light. It's believed stimulates the mitochondria to create more ATP, which is energy. Uh, and by kind of supercharging your cells, your cells are going to be acting in, as a more youthful type of a cell. And that's how it creates these anti-aging effects. And there are studies that have looked at the benefits of red light therapy and found a significant improvement in the firmness and the texture of the skin. There was actually a split face study that I looked at where they split a person's face in half, not physically, but just so that they treat only one half of the face. And they found that on the half treated an improvement in wrinkles and skin hydration and and elasticity. Uh, The good thing about red light therapy is completely non-invasive. You can do it in the comfort of your own home. They're not super expensive. You can buy these tabletop devices for usually a couple hundred dollars. Yeah, and that's the first thing I would really start with if you're talking about bang for your buck.
1: I love that you said that because it's you can completely tailor the treatment. You can use it on your own time. I'm a huge fan of red light. We also use it in the office. Our esthetician uses it in her facials. But I always tell people, you know, using it once a month during your facial is great, but it's not going to have the the benefits you need to have something at home, um, and there are more and more masks coming out all the time. But I, it's something I do every single day. I, I think it's such a great treatment. Um, I tell people of the at home devices that there's only two I use that, and and microcurrent, and I think red light is is the most effective that you can use at home.
0: Yeah. And and like I said, I find that it's, you know, maybe then in your office they're using it, but yeah, it's not ever a discussion at the meetings I go to and stuff. And as a plastic surgeon, I don't go to Durham meetings, so I'm not sure how much they're talking about it, but it just doesn't seem like it's, microcurrent's the same thing. You don't hear anybody talk about it. Uh, And so it's fascinating. Microcurrent, I think is good. I find microcurrent, and I did look for studies on it. There's very little science on microcurrent, which I found interesting. A lot on red light but not much on microcurrent and i feel like micro you know microcurrent i feel you can get this nice kind of temporary improvement but I don't know about long-term results. I'd love to hear, are you seeing long-term improvements?
1: Yeah, so that's kind of exactly what I tell people. I think at this time, I'm not comfortable saying that there's any long-term permanent results that you're going to see from microcurrent. But if you're someone like me who's filming or you're going, you're speaking, going to events, or you just want to look a little bit lifted, I mean, you know, a millimeter, I think that it can be helpful. I definitely notice an immediate improvement. Um, but I also can't say that I'm consistent enough because I have this thought that it's only temporary. I only use it on the days I need to. So I'm not consistently using it every day. Um, But I think as far as consistent results, I tell people red light. But it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back into my own consults. It's not something I talk about much in the office. It's almost like it's just separate, which it shouldn't be because it really is kind of all-inclusive and it should be a part of a routine.
0: Well, and now, too, that there are these devices that are, you know, that they're trying to sell doctors for a couple hundred thousand dollars to stimulate the muscles of the face and all of that, and they're showing, uh, you know, pseudo long-term improvements with it. I don't know. I mean... I think to me, the microcurrent at home, like the new face and all that stuff, if you want to use it, by all means, like it's not going to hurt. And it, it may help, just like what you're saying. I, I'm a bit of a skeptic on the in-office versions of it, though. I don't know that that's going to be worth the money to buy the device and what you need to charge these patients for these treatments.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think... I've never personally had a microcurrent facial, but I have some friends who do them religiously and are, are super happy with it. But again, I think it's more of a temporary result, something you would do, you know, a facial right before an event or something like
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes more sense to me too.
1: Yeah. So I, I know that you're super busy. I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I just have a few follow-up questions just to yeah, kind of course. end things. What is your Holy Grail skin product? If It could be a category or it could be a specific brand and product.
0: Yeah. My Holy Grail skincare product would probably be, it's boring. It's boring for all of you, it's probably a retinol. Um, You know, I think the important thing for retinol, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, I mean, retinol, you've talked about on this show before. Everybody talks about retinol. It's great anti-aging cream and stuff like that. Um, But what a lot of people don't realize is that there are studies that have looked at tretinoin, prescription-strength version of it, and have found that it can reverse early pre-skin cancers. And, you know, you and I being in the skin field, you know, we have seen people with facial skin cancers, and that can be absolutely Devastating. You know, one person I'm fearful for right now, uh, one of my favorite actors, I think probably the most talented person in Hollywood, Hugh Jackman, who keeps getting skin cancers taken off his face. Oh, yeah. You know, I've had patients who yeah. come to see me with just a little dot on the tip of their nose or something, and they go see a dermatologist, they get moles. they come back, and, and half of their nostril is gone. And it's just like, oh my gosh, how are we going to reconstruct this? And so far, Hugh has done, you know, well in that apparently none of his skin cancers have been disfiguring. But you know, I say this because I think it's so so important um, to do everything you can to avoid getting skin cancer, especially on your face. Uh, and so, retinol, I think, you know, a lot of people don't realize. So the studies show that tretinoin can reverse early pre-skin cancers. So you don't treat a skin cancer with it. But if you've got a cluster of cells that are you know, kind of be starting to become dysplastic, then it may help to actually get rid of that. And, and you don't know because this, the skin cancer just never shows up. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that retinol Becomes retin A or tretinoin on your skin. You know, so retinol is over-the-counter strength, and you can buy it over the counter because when it's when you actually purchase it and you put it on your skin, it's inactive, but it goes through two phases and eventually becomes the exact same thing that's put in prescription strength tretinoin. It's just usually at a, at a lower dose. And so to use a retinol, you know, once again, it's great for anti-aging. That's something that you have talked about on your podcast before. Um, but at the same time, it can potentially do even more than that. And so if I had to pick one, that's the one I would probably pick.
1: Yeah, I think that's most skin experts. I would say their holy grail is probably some sort of retinoid, right? Because there's yeah. just so much yeah. data to support it.
0: Although bakuchiol now is kind of interesting. So that's something, too, that I would put as a number two at this point. Um, we'll see as more data comes out on it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's something I tell people, um, you know, the conversation of pregnancy alternatives comes up a lot, especially in my demographic. I have a lot of young female patients and and Followers, yeah. and they're always asking, you know, is it a true pregnancy alternative? And I always say, well, number one, it hasn't been studied in pregnancy, just like all of this stuff, you know, but I believe it's most likely safe. It doesn't work in the same way that retinol works. And number two, you know, I, can we say it's as effective? Probably not just yet, but there are a couple of small studies that are promising. And I always tell people it's also a good antioxidant. So if anything, I use it in my routine with my retinol. So I'm a fan of Bokujial as well.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that's a great idea for people who are skincare enthusiasts. Add it on to your retinol. I mean, why not? It's only going to help.
1: Yeah, and I think you know we're we're very careful about using our vitamin C in the morning, but most of us aren't using any sort of an antioxidant at night. So it's always good to have an antioxidant twice a day if you can.
0: Yeah, that would be that would have been my second thing. I was trying to decide should it be the anti, but yeah, exactly. And I asked in the morning. That's part of that uh, the the skincare routine that we did for the 21 day jumpstart. Very simple. Big, the key components are using an antioxidant in the morning and then using a retinoid at night mm-hmm. uh, and then the other stuff is kind of gravy
1: yeah yeah that's so true I always tell people like three a sunscreen a vitamin C in the morning and a retinol if you do nothing else those are the, the three most important things you can do that
0: is the basis of the skincare routine that we go over yeah. in the book and then we do add exfoliation once mm-hmm. or twice a week because um, I think that can also help with kind of getting the skin cells revved up
1: yeah I think that's, that's probably that sounds like a really good especially starter routine or just someone who's not interested in doing seven steps twice a day. I think that's, you know, we don't need to. That's the bottom line. You don't need to, to have great skin. So true. And what is your most underrated skin tip?
0: Ooh, most underrated skin tip. Um, You know, honestly, it would probably be taking a collagen supplement. Uh, That would be the one. I think it's, there are so many people who poo-poo it. There's so much um, people who don't believe in it, but I really think it helps um, not only with your skin, but with your hair and with your nails and even with your bones, uh, because type one collagen, which is present in the beauty type collagen formulations also is the same collagen that's present in your bones. And as you get older, osteoporosis can be an issue getting older. So it really can help in so many different ways. Um, and so yeah, if I had to pick one, it would be taking a college, a daily collagen supplement. It doesn't have to be mine. You, know, you can take somebody else's. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> but take one. Yeah. Take it daily. I
1: think you sold me on it. I think, you know, ever, ever since that meta-analysis, ever since I became aware of that meta-analysis, I've been like, oh, I, I really should take one. And I just haven't done it yet. It's just, <laughs> you know, I keep slipping my mind. But I think you've sold me. I think I'm going to try it. <laughs> um, if you could tell yourself, what your younger self, one thing, what would it be?
0: Um, I think what it would be would be to... Take care of what you eat. I think growing up, um, you know, I was, it's kind of weird. Like growing up, I, uh, my parents are first-generation Korean immigrants. And so I grew up in a tiny town in the middle of Michigan where when I ate at home with my parents, we would eat food that would be traditional Korean food. So it'd be like rice, fish, vegetables, a lot of garlic, kimchi, fermented foods, and stuff like that, which like perfect, great for your skin and for overall longevity then I would go out with my friends and it would be McDonald's and Burger King and Kentucky Fried Chicken and all these things. And that's something that has stayed with me. There's this kind of dichotomy where I can eat very, very healthy, but I've always, I've grown up with this, like, I don't have a sweet tooth, but it's like this tooth for like bad food, like like fast food type stuff. And I think what if I were to give me one tip, I think as I got older, it would be to really rethink a lot of that and maybe don't eat quite so much of that like as you know we'll go to California visit my folks and my kids like oh we want to go get in and out like Mm -hmm. uh, okay like it's a treat that's totally fine but not eat quite as much as I did growing up uh, and, and even as a young adult as well
1: yeah, I think that's a great point. You don't want those things to be staples in your in your lifestyle because that's when you start running into trouble. And on many fronts, not just your skin.
0: Yeah, and like I said, rare treat is totally fine. My kids are very different in that we've raised them on a different diet than I was raised on. Um, and interestingly enough, they love Asian food. Um, but you say, hey, what do you think about McDonald's? They're like, ugh. No thanks. It's like, oh, that's a great, great reaction. I wish I had that reaction. I still don't have that reaction. Like, ooh, McDonald's.
1: My husband's (laughs) the same way. I'll like, he'll come home and he's like hiding the bag from me. I'm like, I can't believe you're eating that.
0: (laughs) But he loves it. No shame in it, but at the same time, it's not. You know, you should not eat that regularly. Your body will definitely suffer for it. But, but don't feel guilty if you have it for a, you know, a, a, a rare treat. Like, by all means. You know, we got to, you have to live too. You have to live your life, exactly.
1: So where can everybody find your book and when?
0: Um, So what we encourage people is to go to bookshop.org. A lot of people don't know about, but bookshop.org is a website where if you order the book there, you can actually choose your local independent bookstore where if you buy the book there, Um, it's just like an Amazon type of thing, but they will actually send the profit of that sale to your local bookstore. Um, and so, yeah, so if you're looking to buy any books, whether it's my book, younger for life or something else, if you go to bookshop.org, you can choose your local bookstore and then the profit of that sale will go directly to them. Otherwise it's the book will be everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's at Walmart. It's at Costco, wherever you find books. And then we have a website called autojuvenation.com autojuvenation.com where if you go to it, uh, and if you've either pre-ordered the book or ordered it, we have a ton of free gifts, uh, including a a companion recipe uh, book, a quick start skincare guide, and we'll even give you a $30 gift certificate to my online store if you want to try the collagen or any of our skincare products. Uh, So that will more than pay for the price of the book itself. So that's at autojuvenation.com. But once again, try and encourage people to go to bookshop.org if you can to, to to buy the book.
1: That's really cool. I had never heard of that service before and I'm glad to hear about it because I'm a, I'm a big reader. So obviously, oh, I, I love to support the local bookshops whenever possible. So that's great.
0: Yeah, and so I think so many independent bookstores that don't have the ability to have this big website to compete with like Amazon. So this is the website that competes with it and they basically then you can just choose. I mean, I looked up in my area, the local bookstores are like all on it. Um, and uh, and so they just get that profit and that way you can really help support them.
1: Well, that's great. And you guys, I think that if you're someone who's just kind of starting to want to make changes in your skin, or if you've been doing this for a long time, whether or not you've already done procedures or not, this book is, is really so full of, of such tangible information and changes you can make for free at home, which I think is really incredible. They're you know simple things that you can start doing right now today. So I really enjoyed the book and thank you so thank much you, for Amy. coming on the show.
0: Well, I'll have you on my podcast sometime here in the near future too.
1: Yeah, I would love to. Appreciate it. Wow, that's going to be one of those episodes that I listen to over because each time Dr. Yoon mentioned something new, I thought of 10 more follow-up questions. He's such a wealth of knowledge and his new book, Younger for Life, truly changed the way I approach my skin. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, if you learned something new from this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show. It helps us get to the ears of even more skin enthusiasts. Talk to you next week, skin enthusiasts. Thank mm-hmm. you.